killer coffee, body swapping moms, and one hell of a book. Need I say more? This is chapter 192 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and all of that is coming up. I think it's pretty safe to say that when most of us look at those ubiquitous individual coffee pods, we don't say to ourselves, hey, that would be a great way to poison someone. But that's exactly how Samantha Downing's brain works. In her new thriller, For Your Own Good, those innocent-looking pods are used to teach a lesson the kids at the fictional prestigious Belmont Academy won't soon forget. You love to explore the dark sides of all of us in your books, and this latest one is no exception. Can we start with you telling us a little bit more about your story of a prestigious private school and the teacher hell-bent on teaching everybody a lesson? Yes, uh, this book is for your own good is about uh, a teacher named Teddy Crutcher who has just been named teacher of the year and he is um, very sure about what about his job and about very confident in his abilities to teach the kids exactly what he thinks they need to learn Uh, the problem is other people keep getting in his way so uh, that's sort of where the story starts he has a problem with a, a student named Zach Ward and uh, the first chapter sort of sets up the battle for Zach. Please tell me you didn't have a teacher like this in high school. I did not have a teacher like this in high school. I definitely had teachers that played favorites, uh, and I think students are always well aware of which teachers have pets and which ones try to treat everybody equally. Teddy definitely has his favorites and his not so favorites. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like they're more in that not-so-favorite column than there are in the favorite column. Yes, exactly. Um, Class plays a big role in this book. This is a uh, wealthy school where the students are entitled and they are privileged, and Teddy is very much not. So he has a problem with the way these students act and thinks that he needs to teach them a lesson. Do you think that sort of environment is really the setting that you needed to write a book like this? Because I think there's so many strong feelings about class and privilege. And to be honest, if you didn't come from that world, I'm sure we've all met people who need to be knocked down a peg or two, albeit not murder. Right, exactly. Um, I've actually heard from teachers that say they they completely see where Teddy is coming from. It's just his methods they don't necessarily agree with. So I think that it is um, something... People can understand what it would be like to try to be a regular teacher on a regular teacher salary, and you're teaching kids that drive better cars than you have and have lives that will go on to be magnificent. They will go on to Ivy League schools, and they have connections, and they have wealth, and you're the one that's stuck teaching them. So uh, I think it's a it's an interesting dynamic in a private school like that. Teddy does do things that I think any good teacher out there would balk at. Not not just, you know, the, the more nefarious of it, but the way he treats some students. There's a student in particular who whose academic career he basically ruins with a reference letter. Yes, exactly. And that's one of the things um, I find most sinister about Teddy is that he knows what kind of power he has and he knows that he can affect these students' lives. And he does. So he when he's grading these students or, or giving giving out recommendation letters, it's not necessarily based on merit. It's based on opinion. And teachers do, especially in a private school where you 
have fewer rules than in public schools or different rules, you can do that and you can really affect a student's life. I think at some point in all our lives, we've had an adult tell us, you know, I'm doing this for your own good. Can that ever have good intentions or does it ever come from good intentions? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's such a um, aggressive statement um, that I'm doing all of this for your own good. Uh, it, it's coming from something. I don't know if it's necessarily good, though. The lesson behind it may or may not be good, but the method doesn't sound very good. Can we take a minute and, and talk about your death vehicle of choice, which is those individual coffee pods filled with poison. Yes. Where did that idea come from? Uh, the original idea actually came, I was in a hotel room and um, it was one of the first hotel rooms I had stayed in that had the, the single serve coffee maker instead of like the old little old fashioned ones. And uh, I, it had pods there for me to use. And I just thought it was crazy that I, I just started thinking it would be so easy to mess with these pods. I mean, I guess it would be just as easy to mess with food from the mini bar, but there's something about the coffee pod. It's such a perfect delivery system and people don't check the pod thoroughly. I mean, you would notice if it was open on the top or if something was falling on the bottom, but you wouldn't notice if it had been uh, tampered with necessarily. You just stick it in the coffee maker and make your coffee. And I just thought it was such a perfect way to deliver something unexpected to someone. And I thought, well, who would touch these? I mean, somebody was in the room last night and other people have touched these. Who knows how long they've been sitting there that haven't been used. It could have been multiple guests in the hotel. And what a perfect serial killer that would be just for someone to go into a hotel and gamble with coffee pot. Note to self, don't have coffee at your house. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. From the coffee pods, I wanted to go to the poison because I find it really, really interesting. And I can't imagine what your Internet search history must look like. And you're lucky nobody around you has has popped up dead because I think you might be in some trouble. (laughs) Right. Um, Yes, I did do a lot of research into the plants and especially into the um, effects of each poison because they can be different. And a lot of poisons are... um, uh, take up, you get really, really sick and you end up hospitalized before you ever die. And so it had to be the, the correct method for how it would kill you. Um, so, yeah, I, I probably have a pretty interesting <laughs> internet search. And um, for Teddy in particular, it's, it's very symbolic because of his overgrown yard and the fact that he ignores it and he just closes the curtains and he won't look at it. And then it turns out to be that yard where he discovers all these wonderful ways to kill people. <laughs> I also love that play, like like turning around that stereotype, because you always hear women tend to be the ones who use poison. And I love that in this case, it's a man. Exactly. And that, that was definitely deliberate. Uh, I know that women are, are typically the ones that use poison because it is, it is a nonviolent way to kill somebody. You don't need a lot of body strength to use poison it's the same way you would need if you wanted to strangle somebody or, and it's not as, it's not bloody, it's not messy. It's, and, and you're completely removed from the effects because they happen later on. They, most poisons don't work instantaneously. So you may not even be around to see it. Um, so it's a very uh, subversive way to kill somebody. <laughs> I thought it would be interesting to have a man do that instead of a woman. 
I mean, the book is a, a compulsive page turner. I could not wait. I could could not stand most of the characters. I guess, you know, like they're they're not inherently good people. But at the same time, you can't wait to see where they're going and, and what next thing they're going to do. Samantha Downing, thank you for your time today. The book is for your own good. Go out and read it. Thank you. All right, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that at some point, most of us have looked at someone else's life and thought they have it so much easier or better or luckier. Women, especially moms, feel that kind of pressure to be the best at everything, and we aren't always so nice to each other when it comes to who's doing a good job. Well, Kelly Harms is trying to change all that in her delightful new body swap novel, The Seven Day Switch. We all know that saying about the grass being greener, and it applies to everything, including being a mom. And you have to tell me, where did this idea of having a working mom and a stay-at-home mom switch bodies come from? Well, it comes from my own experience and a love of the movie Freaky Friday. <laughs> Wait, you, you've actually switched bodies? <laughs> oh, right? Um, I would love to, but I would like to choose the body with which I switch. But no, I. Um, what happened is I spent a lot of time sort of straddling both sides. And I think many moms will be able to relate to how last year, especially, and some of us still, are experiencing a little bit from column A and a little bit of column B while we endeavor to either work from home or we've had to roll back careers and um, to support the kids who haven't been in school. And when I was coming up as a, as a young mother and my son was just a baby, the time to go back to work was very fraught for me and all of my mothering friends. So. When I was a writing from home mom trying to get everything done for the motherhood and also writing the books while my son napped and when he went to bed, and as a single mother, it was very hectic, then I spent a lot of time daydreaming about how much easier life would just be if I just went to the office and was an adult in real clothes all day long and nobody threw up on me and I didn't have to, you know, do any toilet training. And then I came home and stepped into the mother role. So I fantasized about that all the time. So you approach it from the Celeste point of view in your book. I definitely do. Although I write full time now, I just, I had to try to balance those two things when I was a young writer because there, there simply just wasn't, enough hours in the day. I think many moms will relate to that feeling. (laughs) And when I was daydreaming about how much, in my own mind, easier life would be if I had a regular adult job and had an office to go to, at the same time, I was speaking to my friends who are in those positions and understanding and letting it really soak in that they had their own set of struggles when they came home and had the second shift and reconnect with their children, get them in the bath, get them to bed, all has to happen really fast. Then when at the time where I might be sitting down to start my writing, they got the kids in bed and they were starting to do all the things they had to do to be ready for the next day or laundry or all the things that I had gotten done during the day. So I started to really understand in that fundamental gut level 
that you just can't win parenting and that it's going to be hard no matter which way you do it. And I don't think there's a mom out there who might pick up your book that is not going to identify with either Celeste, who's the stay-at-home mom, or Wendy, who's the the super busy, you know, business owner mom. But it, it's just crazy to me, like, it it works its way into your book a little bit, that there's no shortage of online articles that weigh the pros and cons about right. working or staying at home and what you may or may not be doing to your child's development if you choose either role. And it just leaves me wondering, like, why are we so hard on ourselves? It's abs. I mean, I would say it's silly, but it's very serious at the same time. There are an endless number of, I think, maybe women. And that comes from how we were raised and from various amounts of pressure from outside who are ready to tell you with a hundred percent straight face that it's their way or the highway. And there are a lot of products to be sold to mothers when we feel that we're coming up short. And that's a natural feeling, even without outside pressure, that idea that, Oh, I want to be just the absolute best mom I can be. And I'm not sure I'm getting there. That's just, for me, I felt like that was the most natural, universal feeling, no matter what your lifestyle was for a mother. But then we take that insecurity and we turn it on other people so that we can prop ourselves up. I think, again, it's natural, it's human, but I have these two characters doing it to each other in a sort of an exaggerated, larger-than-life way in the hopes that we'll see just a little of ourselves in it and maybe we can pull it back a little. You're a fan of the original Freaky Friday or the remake? Uh, Both. Both. (laughs) I'm just old enough to love both of them. I mean, everything Jamie Lee Curtis does, I'm here for, so there's that. But I've always, even when I was a young kid, thought, well, this is dumb. I know what my mom's life is like. We talk all the time. What I want to know is what it's like to be someone from well outside my experience. So I've always wanted to write a Freaky Friday book. And this is the first time that someone said yes to me. And it's crazy to me that no one's done this before because it seems like such a natural flip just because, like we said at the top of this interview, each mom wants to be in the other mom's shoes because they think they have it easier. Right. And Look, if you look at body swap novels, you're going to, as I did before I started working so that I didn't, you know, come too close to anything, you're going to find that there's plenty of choices out there. But the particular mom swap that I felt like I had to explore is just how, how it's like such low hanging fruit. How did nobody write this before? I was really glad to get there first. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm glad you got there first too. I also love the impetus for the switch, which is some very potent sangria with some artisanal vodka in the mix. Right. As anyone, any mom knows, there are those social events where you've been working hard all day, you're stressed out. And the first thing you do is have a big glass of whatever's on tap and then you just try to hold it together for the rest of the night (laughs) well these women don't hold it together for the rest of the night they just keep going with disastrous results we'll say i want to talk about the their families the husbands and the kids because while it is about the these two moms and everything they're going through the families are obviously a really really big part of their stories one of the scenes i just finished reading was when uh, one of them is getting ready for a big event 
And the youngest kid of the whole bunch goes, that mommy just went upstairs, which I love (laughs) that the youngest kid in the group is the one that kind of knows what's going on. You know, not all of my readers have caught that. So I'm so glad that you brought that up. I hope that readers who might hear this uh, will keep an eye out for some of those little Easter eggs that I put in. Um, I think that our kids are much smarter than we realize sometimes. They have emotional insights that blow me away on a regular basis. And one of the things I really enjoyed writing in this story was the idea that you can love your friend's kids, your neighbor's kids, that they can become a part of your heart in a way that I don't see portrayed very often. Um, that, That once you've gone through parenting for a little while, your heart gets so big that there becomes endless amounts of capacity in it. It's almost like and an extension of uh, of your own family and maybe your own family, be, being exactly. being an aunt to a beloved aunt to a, an, an even bigger group of kids. Yeah, exactly. And then and then if you've if you've got a little bit of a neighborhood connection, like the neighborhood I portrayed in the story, um, I love to see it when moms feel comfortable stepping up for each other, whether that's you know a gentle correction. Or it's, uh, yeah, they can come watch movies at my house. Perfection, when we stop expecting perfection, we open the door for so much more help, community, friendship, connection, not just for ourselves, but for our kids as well. As for the husbands, we've got one who's really a stand-up guy and the other one who mm-hmm. has his issues. We'll say it, we'll, we'll put it mildly for that. Um Right. <laughs> <laughs> that that couldn't be that easy to write either, because it's not like you want to dump on the men in this book. Absolutely not. All things being considered, the, this, the men might get their own book someday, but this isn't the book about them. Ooh. That said, what I really was excited to tell the story of is how different their lives are on the inside from what they look like on the outside. I think that's a big life lesson a lot of people still have yet to learn. You know what? Let's just keep repeating it. It'll sink in for all of us one of these days, right? <laughs> Eventually, we'll get that the life we have is just wonderful if we're just able to like take a beat and really look at it. You know what? When that is true and it just clicks in and connects, what a magical moment that is. And hopefully, you can get there without drinking too much sangria. <laughs> but if you happen to, then, you know, no, no, no judging from us. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, I want to I want to wrap up this interview and just ask, you know, what's your favorite part about being a mom? Uh, my son is the source of endless wonder. And whenever I can stop and do one thing at a time, which is it's a luxury uh, as, as a single mom, I have to struggle with this but whenever I can stop and just be with him I the gift of presence that children can give you is so amazing so that's what I love about it and I just bring you back to the moment you're in over and over again and I did read somewhere that uh, he does wish you put a little a few more dragons into your books yeah (laughs) my son is dragon age and he is a huge fan of a lot of other authors but he says you know mom I'm glad that your books are doing well and people seem to like them but have you ever thought about adding more dragons <laughs> <laughs> I love one of these that. days 
Yeah. Yeah. Never, never say never. Right. Right. We've been talking with Kelly Harms. The new book is The Seven Day Switch. Thank you for your time today, Kelly. Oh, it's been great speaking. Jason Mott's new novel, Hell of a Book, is, well, a hell of a book. But I'll be honest, the story might leave you confused, angry, laughing, crying, maybe even a little uncomfortable, as it blurs the lines between reality and imaginary, all the while chronicling what it's like to be black in America. The storyline features two narrators. The first is a black author on a book tour during which another young, unarmed black man is killed. The second is a young kid whose skin is so dark, he's nicknamed Soot. Is it based on Jason's own experiences? Yes? Maybe? No? I'll let him tell it. It's not very often that you read a book that makes you laugh, cry, uh, be outraged, be inspired to act, yearn to understand, and also just want to burn everything to the ground and start over, like your book left me. Your book's been out for a little bit now. What have you been hearing from other readers? Do they feel the same way? Yeah, it's been a great reaction. Like people are finding like highs and lows are swinging left and right as far as like the emotional kind of gravitas. Like that exact thing you described where people are laughing on one page and then crying on the next page and angry one moment and then later the next. Um, It's been great to see people have that kind of reaction to it. I mean, when you open a book uh, with a guy running naked through a hotel, you kind of don't know what what, what you're in store for. (laughs) Exactly. I wanted to... I wanted to capture just the the feeling of the absurdness of book tours. And I also wanted to just have readers not be sure what to expect. Like I wanted to really make people like stay on their toes, so to speak. And I think that was just a fun way to do it. That being said, you deal with some really difficult topics. You know, anybody who reads this book, they're going to want to talk to other people about racism, police violence, what it means to be black in America. And it's really ironic. And I'm sure this was intentional on your part. The, the writer in your book struggles with the idea that writers of color are expected or obligated to address these themes in, the, in their works, and yet you do. So what made you finally do that? There's a lot of semi-autobiographical context in the novel. Um, and so for me, a lot of my career has been trying to find that balance between wanting to just be a, an author who writes as opposed to a Black author who writes. Because you are always kind of put in that box where if, if you're a minority and you are an author, you're whatever that minority is, like you're a black author, you're a, a female author. And so the, the, a lot of my career has been trying to balance those two. And so I wanted to kind of really magnify and have that discussion about the way that that pressure is put upon like black authors or minority authors in general to be this ambassador for all these topics when it's like, these are topics that affect all of us. Why can't we all be a part of this and still have the freedom to talk about other things as well? You've also said that that this book came about because you were tired of not speaking out and tired of not listening to your own true voice. What does that mean? I've had a really good career, obviously, and I've enjoyed a lot of my writing. But I've definitely I've wanted to write this type of story where it is comedic and bizarre and experimental and strange and does a lot of a lot of technical stuff in terms of writing um, and also just the, com- the comedic aspects of it. And I, for whatever reason, I've kind of shied away from that in my other novels. My other novels are much more kind of serious. And so with this one, and this one is serious, obviously, but I wanted to finally just really be as creative as I've always wanted to be and not worry about the consequences of it and just pour all of the insanity that I have inside onto the page and see what happens. And luckily, it seems to be working out pretty well. So I'm really excited about that. Do you think you would not have been able to write this book without having the success of your previous books? Like if this was your first one out of the gate? Yeah, I think it would be difficult. I think I think it's definitely possible, um, but I think definitely think it would be pretty difficult to have this be your first novel, just because um, 
the industry, like these types of books oftentimes aren't really, they're, they're, they're kind of pushed, get pushed back on a little bit because again, the theory is that readers want simple stories and simple storytelling. And there's, you know, there's a basis for that. But I think that readers are also very open to more fun and experimental and reading that make that, you know, text them on a journey. And so I think as for a first novel, it would be really difficult to push this out. So I think that having a track record definitely helps towards that. I mean, I think what you did with this book, like I wasn't sure what to expect page to page. And and the story is so compelling. You're trying to figure out where it's going. You're trying to figure out, you know, is this author just crazy? Is it, it, it mm-hmm. like, is there something else going on? And it's unlike anything I've ever read. And I don't really want to get like too much into it because I really would like people to experience it in themselves. Right. It's funny because that was the reaction I got from so many readers. Like I've got friends who I send stuff to when it's pretty early on in the process. And um, even in editorial with my editor and other readers like that, that sentiment of not knowing where things were going and always kind of be on their toes. And like I had a friend who read it. And she she got she texted me as she was like three quarters of the way through it. And she was like, I'm really angry at you because I thought I had this all figured out and now I don't have it figured out. And you make me angry. <laughs> so that reaction that the goal was to make it this this puzzle or not puzzle but like this labyrinthine kind of journey that you're being led on that turns left and right and twists back on itself and yet to not have readers get lost and to have people still be grounded and still be able to affect them emotionally and obviously it's working because you've landed on almost every single best book of the summer list there is yeah that's been pretty phenomenal like i, I definitely did not expect any of that I mean, you can never expect that and so it's just it's been really great because again, like it was to me, this was a very high risk novel to write. Um, you know, I didn't have a publisher at the time. I had left my previous publisher to go off and just write this weird story of my own. And when I first pitched it to my 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 agent, she wasn't overly excited about it. She's like, "I'm not sure about this, but go ahead and write it if you want to." And then once she read it, she loved it. But it was to me, this was a very high risk novel. And so seeing the reaction, the list that it's making is just really um, really empowering for me, really validating. Now, besides achieving all that, which is just like the cherry on top, what else do you hope to achieve with this book and putting it out there? Is it to spark conversations among readers? Is it really just to entertain? Or maybe I'm just reading too much into all of it. No, I think you're, you're reading into it the exact amount. Like the goal of the novel is twofold. Like it is meant to entertain, but the primary goal of it is to create conversations. Like I wanted to write a novel where people who maybe aren't sure about the discussions on like race in America and identity in America and like the the lives of black people in America could enter into that conversation and be guided through the conversation and still have some laughs along the way, have some fun. But I want it because I think that people see that they watch the news and they hear people talk and they feel like this, there's a subject that is so big and so complex. They don't know how to enter into it, how to have these conversations, start these conversations. So I wanted this book to be a place where readers can come to it and just be led into the conversation and at the end of the book have places they could discuss with other readers and say well what about this part and like what is he saying about identity here and how do you think that affects my friend who i work with who you know is also a black person who comes into work and like does this affect them and like that's what i wanted was to have this place where people could enter into this national conversation but through an unexpected route now that you've committed this story which you said you've been kind of writing your whole life really onto the page. What's next? You've done this crazy thing. What what comes after it? So I'm working on another project right now, which I'm still not sure what's going to turn into. Um, But I mean, the short answer is the next thing is I write another novel. Um, My goal is to just always be writing some novel. So I'm always working on something. Um, 
so yeah, I think that's the core of it. As far as other projects, like I try not to, to put too much expectations on future projects. I just kind of let them become whatever they want to become. Um, so yeah, the goal is just to keep writing and hopefully people will like the next novel as well. Okay. Now, finally, I have to ask, how do you really feel about book tours and doing these kinds of interviews and questions like, what is your book really about? <laughs> I think book tours are wonderful. They're they're bizarre and surreal and all those things that I kind of make fun of in the novel, but they're actually really wonderful. Like the best part of a book tour is talking to readers who have read the book and like do like interviews like this with people like yourself who have read the book and who like it has had an impact on like that is a feeling that you can never match as an author. But then all the traveling, all the, the weird interactions you sometimes have, those are the things that just you, you kind of laugh about. It's, it's a surreal experience. Like it's, my, my, my final answer is I enjoy book tours, but they're very weird. <laughs> I'm sure like the assembly line of interviews you have, you have lined up today. As soon as you hang up with me, you're going to talk to somebody else, aren't you? Yes, exactly. I've got like <laughs> seven hours of interviews a day, which again is, is a bizarre thing to do. But it's actually, I mean, it's, it's kind of fun. You don't get to do it often. So it's like, just enjoy the ride. I think that's one thing I learned is just to enjoy the ride. Make fun of the ride, but enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I enjoyed your book. It's called Hell of a Book. I'm sure you've already heard all the puns possible out there. It really is hell of a book. <laughs> Jason Mott, thank you for your time today. And good luck with the, you know, T minus seven hours of interviews you have left. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. It's terrific. Thank you. That's where we close the book on this chapter. We have so many good author interviews coming up next time. We'll chat with Megan Abbott about her ballet thriller. It's on point. Plus, we hear all about the book pitched to me as Get Out meets The Devil Wears Prada. You won't want to miss it. Until then, keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.